0: Okay, this is Through the Balance podcast. Uh, Joseph, do you
1: want to introduce yourself? Sure, absolutely. Uh, My name is Joseph Santoyo, and um, I've been working in film sound in both production and post-production for about eight and a half years now.
0: Have you done any other creative field stuff? Like, were you interested in filmmaking at all when you started?
1: Yeah, when when I first started, I started out in writing like screenplays. I kind of Coming to the end of high school, I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life, and everyone always asks you, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I was like, I have no clue. And that was kind of starting to freak me out a little bit, and then, it's kind of a long story, but just for fun, our church did this, like, um, Bible club thing at an apartment complex every week, and I took one of the Bible lessons and adapted it into a humorous kind of stage play type format. Long story short, everybody loved it, and they were like, that's really funny. So they ended up doing it for the whole church, and a couple of uh, filmmakers at church saw it and said, wow, that's hilarious. We They'd just been hired to produce a series of short educational videos, and they said, you're you're hilarious. Like, do you want to come write for us? And so I was like, oh, this, this is it. This, this is my career. So I started doing that. Didn't really go anywhere, but... Uh, I pretty quickly transitioned to sound, and uh, just kind of fell in love with that, and I've been doing it ever since.
0: What made you change from writing like screenplays to go over to sound? Because that's quite the jump.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so the that first project that I did some writing for, we didn't have anyone to do the sound for it, so I was kind of voluntold, if you will. Uh, Nobody else wanted to do it, so I was like, uh, they asked me to, and. So I said, sure. And it was a disaster. That first project, I I had no concept of what clipping was or that it was bad. So almost the entire, uh, the entire first project is just completely distorted.
0: Okay. Uh, did you go to school for sound or anything, or are you self-taught? Or
1: I'm self-taught. For a long time, I was going to go to school. And then I was talking to one of the owners of the, I'd say probably the largest studio where I lived. And they get a lot of interns from one of the local schools that has a fairly well-known audio program. And he just said, save your money, man. Don't, uh, don't bother with it. We give interns in here after four years and you're kind of just left scratching your head going, what, what have you been doing? Uh, (laughs) So, he just said, find somebody that's doing what you want to do and, uh, work with them. So I was blessed to get connected with a couple of just really amazing mentors that took me under their wing and spent a lot of time, uh, just pouring into me.
0: Okay. So when did you start doing production sound?
1: Um, I started doing production sound. It was like the summer of 2013 and a friend called me up and I was one of the only sound people that he knew. So, I guess he just kind of assumed that because I was, you know, I did sound that I could do production as well. So he asked me to do the sound for his, for his short film, he was producing. And, uh, so I accepted the job and then promptly called up a mentor and said, uh, (laughs) what do I do? (laughs) Not really sure how this is supposed to work. A couple of months and kind of talking through it with a bunch of people. I showed up on that project and, uh, it in in some ways it was it was kind of a disaster, but it turned out okay. And uh I learned a ton on that first project. And then from there it was just kind of this I, I would say maybe a year and a half long uh transition.
0: And when you started were you the boom operator and sound mixer doing the
1: same uh doing both of them? That first project uh film that I did the uh production sound for, I had a boom op that was working under me. Um, who consequently knew probably at least twice as much about production sound as, as I did. But for the most part, even until now, I'm usually just kind of one man banding it. I have a couple of projects this year, some narrative stuff that I will just be mixing and I will have a boom up. But that has not been, largely has not been the case up to this point.
0: Are you getting kind of most of your jobs person to person? Is it through the
1: internet? This is going to be so cliche, but I feel like every year I'm blown away by how true it is. So try not to roll your eyes, everyone. But uh, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know. Personal, almost all of my work comes from either a directly personal connection with someone or someone that I've worked with or worked for in the past, uh, kind of giving me a referral. And then, well, I actually get quite a bit of work also from the internet, Facebook, but uh, but yeah, relationships and like cultivating those. and um, I spend quite a bit of time on Facebook. really, Facebook is kind of the main platform, just a lot of time helping people with their audio problems, you know, one man band. Uh, or you know dps whoever people who aren't necessarily always hiring a sound mixer even though they probably should be helping them get their get audio stuff figured out and that has been a huge source of connections for me and i don't even necessarily do it uh do it with the intention of getting connections i just love helping people but that's certainly certainly a very pronounced uh side effect for lack of a, a better word um, is just that you kind of become known as, I don't know, known as the audio guy. So
0: if a boom operator like has actually done boom operating and knows he wants to do it as a career, would you suggest to him to invest
1: in like better gear or start with a cheaper gear and just go out and start? If he's just wanting to be a boom op, then the gear requirement for a boom op is very low. Bring a boom pole and that's about it at least in the kind of the the professional realm. They're usually not uh, providing their own microphones.
0: What about for a boom operator slash sound mixer?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say, if they're kind of um, looking to do both, with which I think starting out, I don't know many people that starting out were able to just do one or the other. So... The universal rule of gear that you have to always, always keep as like the number one uh, question when you're deciding whether or not to buy a piece of gear is, am I going to be making money off of this? Or maybe more specifically, am I going to be able to make enough money off of this to make back my investment? I would say, man, I, I think that my advice would be to buy... As nice as you can without really, you know, without certainly without taking out a loan or anything like that. Um, buy as, as nice as you can. And if you can't get, you know, the sound devices and, and everything else, well, that that's fine. And uh, use that until either you can't use it anymore, or it just begins to slow you down or whatever that is. And then from there upgrade, but I would certainly advise against marginal upgrades. I think that you can waste a lot of money by just barely upgrading.
0: Someone went out to get a pretty good recorder, pretty good mic. They contacted you again and said, hey, man, I got a job offer. How much are they paying? Oh, it's free. Uh, Just doing it for experience. What would you say to that?
1: Ooh, wow, that's that's a very... um. This is kind of an issue that I hold fairly near and dear to my heart because I did the free, very low-paid thing, for a long time. And I would say I was probably, I don't know, two years behind where I should have been for a very long time. And uh, maybe the last year and a half has seen like a very dramatic uh, kind of in terms of rates and, and whatnot, uh, being where I should be. And I would say it probably wasn't till mid to, you know, I don't know, October ish of last year, that I finally kind of landed where I feel like I should be. So I would say initially starting out, you're going to have to do some free work. Um, and then there's certainly going to be a period where you're going to be doing very low paying work. But I think it's very important to not stay there for very long at all. And I heard someone put it really well. They, um, A lot of people, freelancers, when they're first starting out, Uh, struggle with self-doubt. And to this day, like I literally yesterday, (laughs) I booked a gig and when I got off the phone inside, I'm freaking out because I'm like, wow, what if I just don't deliver a level of professionalism that they expect? Or what if, you know, it just ends up being a lousy location and my stuff doesn't sound that good. And so I think you're probably going to struggle with self-doubt pretty far into your career, but the question you have to ask yourself is, will I be doing this, providing this service at a level that's better than what they can do themselves? And if the answer to that is yes, then the service you're providing someone has value. And in the low-budget market, a lot of times, they don't treat you like the service you're providing has any value, but that's absolutely wrong, especially if you can do it better than they can. And so when you're asking that question, like, man, am I good enough that I can start charging people money to do this? I feel like I'm still learning. Well, first of all, you're going to be quote unquote, still learning for the entire rest of your career. So, um, but secondly, are you doing it better than they can? And if the answer is yes, then the service you're providing has a very real legitimate value. So I would say, it's okay to start charging people fairly early on, as long as you're not just completely botching uh, everything that you're doing. A lot of people don't, especially kind of, you know, again, in the lower budget area, uh, if you own gear, they just kind of expect that you'll be okay bringing it for free. And that's just not the case. You know, if, if they want, in that case it's like, okay well then you provide the gear and I will happily come and operate it if you don't want to rent mine but yeah, you, you know you kind of out of pocket made an, an investment in gear so that you can better provide your services to them and um, that's just kind of part of running a good business uh, your costs have to be passed on to your clients because you incurred those costs because you're trying to serve the client better when you're when you're first starting out um, you need to be you need to be charging uh, charging people, and in terms of what you should be charging them, that's where it gets I would say very very nuanced. But I also heard someone he, he did a, a breakdown of you know multiple industries, and essentially the number he landed on was twenty five dollars an hour. And as someone who is offering a a service, you know using a very specialized skill such as sound mixing or being a boom operator, um, $25 an hour is kind of the the, the minimal um, amount that you should be looking to work for. And when you kind of start coming down, you know, going below that number, he kind of started out at minimum wage. And it's like, I can walk into McDonald's get a job. They'll train me for half a day and I'm off to the races making minimum wage. So with a specialized skill like sound mixing there's certainly not to say that someone who's flipping burgers at McDonald's has no value but that skill is not nearly as specialized as maybe a film sound mixer and so yeah, anyway he he walked up up the chain of like you know someone working at retail at you know Kohl's or JCPenney or wherever um and what they're making and then you know maybe what a manager's making and that managers you know the kind of specialized skills. So anyway, he landed on $25 an hour is kind of the least that someone should be charging. And I very much agree. That's, that's pretty much the bare, bare minimum. Because the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that when someone walks into McDonald's, McDonald's does not make them buy their own burger fryer and, um, you know, make them buy a cash register and, all of the equipment and things that they're using. And usually companies will have some sort of, um, you know, after working full time for, you know, a year or whatever, some benefits will start to kick in. And things of that nature and, you know, companies have 401ks that they'll, you know, match funds for and whatnot. But as a freelancer, you don't have any of that. So every single tool that you are using to uh, work on this person's project is something that you have to bring to the table, that you have to out-of-pocket front the cost for that. And so then when it comes to retirement, that's all entirely on you. So we'll say a fair... Starting kind of baseline is twenty five dollars an hour, and the other thing you have to keep in mind that when you're working almost anywhere else, you're going to go into work tomorrow, and you worked today, and you worked yesterday, and you're going to go into work next week, and you're going to go into work the month after that, and the year after that. You know, hopefully, if if you don't get fired or the company doesn't go under, et cetera. Whereas as a freelancer, you never know where your next job is coming from, and so when you take a job, you have to have a high enough margin that you're going to be able to live until you get your next job. And a lot, another common pitfall that um, certainly myself uh, that I fell into and I see so many people falling into is uh, they're not, they have zero profit margin, like true profit in their business as a freelancer. They're charging enough to where it's covering their costs but there's no profit. And you can't successfully run a business with no profit margin. It just does not work. No one is selling you their products at cost. And so as a business person, because you are in business as a freelancer, it's really, really important to cultivate a business mindset and approach everything you do from that mindset. And so having a profit margin, for instance, is Really really important and in in terms of you know making enough so that you can live until you get your next job, you're probably not going to be working that consistently um, starting out and I've heard a lot of people say that starting out you're gonna probably gonna have to have a second job when I was first starting out and kind of getting my feet under me I was still living at home and so I didn't really um, but if someone does, sometimes in the, in the film industry, there can be this kind of, you feel this level of shame about the fact that you have a day job that you work and you kind of do film stuff on the side. But there is like nothing shameful about that. That's, if anything, when I see people that are doing that, I have more respect for them because they are just busting it, you know, working a full-time job and then doing film stuff on the side to make the dream a reality and like wow hats off to them
0: yeah i totally agree with that funny thing is i went to full cell university and we mm-hmm. had this one guy walk in from i don't know career d- department and he literally said work really hard so you don't have to get a second job and work at target and i started laughing out loud <laughs> and, and i'm just thinking where's the shame in that like
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Like what you said, it's more respectful and almost more like honorable of getting that second job so you can pay your own way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My uh, my grandpa, when I first started out in film, uh, kind of working in the industry, he would ask me. um, So a little bit of backstory. My grandpa is one of those one of those guys that was just like pulled himself up by his bootstraps worked stupid hard his entire life and he did very very well for himself but it came at the cost of a lot of blood and sweat and tears for decades right and he would ask me when are you gonna go when are you gonna get a job joe and i'd say i i do have a job you know i you know i work as this you know sound guy and he'd be like no i mean a real job um and I kind of laugh about it now, but that was actually kind of like, I don't know, in, in some ways kind of hurt, like at, at the time it was like, you know, suddenly you start kind of like questioning yourself. It's like, well, like, is this a real job? And and I think part of the reason that shame kind of, uh, around having to work a second job, I think part of that comes from maybe people outside of the cre- creative realm, um, not really viewing what we do as a real job. And I think they do once you're at, you know, a professional level and you're like working for Nike, but the process leading up to that, um, I think sometimes it's a bit of a struggle for them to view it that way. And I think that it then becomes difficult for us to see it that way and to feel good about it and to not feel like, you know, we're just wasting our life away and, uh, you know, that what we're doing, you know, feel like it doesn't have any, any worth in the, you know, quote unquote real world. But yeah. And actually I, it totally slipped my mind. I said, I didn't, I didn't work a second job. I actually did. I worked at Hobby Lobby for, I don't know, it was pro, I think it was about six months. Um, and at the end of the six months, I, I would have kept working there. Um, but a opportunity to work on a feature film came up. That was just too good to turn down and so I was just like well I I." so when I got the job there it's because the freelancing thing wasn't working out which is partially my fault you know just because of I, I was just not I was not charging enough I was not treating myself like a business I was just making so many mistakes Um, so I got the job and then uh, you know that opportunity came along and I was like well I hadn't planned on returning back to freelancing so quickly, but um, I'm not going to pass this opportunity up. So
0: I also get the thing, too, where people still come up to me, ask me what I do, and they say, oh, uh, you actually make money doing that? Me and my friend were talking about this earlier today, and we were saying that even if they do think you do have a job, they don't value that time at your other job as much as if you were working a real job. It's just kind of interesting that people don't value your time as much when that's probably the most important thing as freelancers and business
1: people. Yeah, your 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 time is as a freelancer is so valuable, but I get flack for that a lot. Um particularly from family. And to be fair, I think that as a freelancer, it's very, very important to step back and take a look at your life and figure out what balance is going to look like, because I know people in the film industry who are, like, right now, today, in the process of burning their marriage to the ground, and they've got kids, you know, that are still really young, and it's just like, man, dude, I... It just kind of kills me to see that, and they just haven 't found balance in their work, but back to your original point of people not valuing kind of that time that you spend it 's like you know everybody because you don 't have a normal day job, they just expect you to be able to drop whatever you 're doing and hang out or you know do whatever anytime uh which is not the case uh, Opportunity cost is a very, very real thing that most people I don't really feel like experience a whole lot um, in other fields. But I can't tell you the number of times that I've taken a job that on the outside was just kind of a boring, mundane, you know, easy day. You just kind of walk in, record a couple of sit down interviews in the same room. You don't do much. You're basically just punch and record all day but connections that I made through that job or, you know, whatever it was, it ended up ultimately being something much, much more than just coming in and and recording uh, someone talking for a day. I've also had, I had a project where a a student asked me to help out on his, one of his student films. And so I did, and he could only pay me $10 an hour. And he said, it's going to be a six hour shoot. I can only afford $10 an hour. I was like, sure dude that's fine whatever and that weekend was coming up and I got a call from an acquaintance that I knew through another sound designers actually one of my primary uh, mentors and this production mixer ended up double booked and he needed somebody he called my mentor and my mentor was like hey you need to give Joe a shot so he calls me with a gig it was a weekend in New Orleans and it was paying two grand, uh, but it was the same weekend that I had committed to working on this guy's student film. And so I would say that's the probably the harshest lesson I've ever learned. And at the time, two grand for like a two-and-a-half-day shoot was a mind-blowing rate. And then ultimately, we ended up shooting for eight, eight hours on the student film. And when he wrote the check, he only wrote it for $60. And I was like, well, hey, dude, we, you know, I said, we said $10 an hour and we shot for eight. He's like, no, you agree to 60, which is true. He was like, we're going to shoot for six hours and I can afford $10 an hour. Is $60 good. And I was like, sure. So it was just kind of like, wow. Um, so all that to say opportunity cost is a very, very real, um, a very real thing. And, uh. Something that you should always kind of be keeping in the back of your mind. But on the flip side of that, um, sometimes there's such a thing as opportunity cost with your family, for instance, and sometimes you just need to, you know, if if you're married, for instance, sometimes you need to just say, turn down a gig and say, nope, actually, I'm not going to take that. And my family and I are just going to go on a, you know, four day, you know, mini vacation or we're just going to spend four days at home just, you know chilling out and just being with each other.
0: If you were in that circumstance now saying $10 an hour, well, that's basically nothing. Now would you probably have said no? And then that way it would open up that door um, for a better and bigger project?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I really don't think I would have taken that job now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and honestly, if I knew now... If I knew then what I know now, I would have turned down that job too, even though I didn't have anything at the time. Um, It just wasn't worth it. Now, there can be exceptions to that. And I tell people, and this is not really an original thought to me. um, I don't know if it's just multiple things that I've kind of cobbled together. No, I think I've seen it somewhere. But a job really only has three things that I can offer you, money, um, relationships, or creative fulfillment and or maybe not necessarily creative fulfillment but like career fulfillment it's like i've always wanted to work with nike and so when you get the call for the nike job this would never happen because they actually have budgets but um you know if it was free and you didn't feel like you were going to make any good connections or maybe even you couldn't in the real world but even if you knew you weren't going to make any connections it's like the career fulfillment that I'm going to get out of being able to say I worked for Nike makes it worth it to take this project. Um, So fulfillment of some type, money and relationships. And any job you take should have two of those things. It's kind of like the good, fast and cheap, where you can either do a job well, or you can do it fast, or you can do it cheaply. And you can only pick two of those for any given job. So if you do it well, um, and you, and they want you to do it fast, then it's not going to be cheap. And if they want you to do it cheaply, um, then you're either going to have to, if they want it cheaply and fast, it's not going to be done well. And I would take that a step farther and say, whether or not you're doing a job well, I would take that option off the table. Always, 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 always do your best work. One of the best opportunities that I've ever had in my career where I've received I can like where I am today in my career I can trace almost every single aspect of everything about where my career is back to this one film that I worked on and connections that I made there and certainly I've branched out multiple like generations if you will from those connections but it all started there that's really what kind of kicked, yeah kick my career in a lot of ways and That all came about because I had done some sound design for a little video that didn't matter at all, really. But I did it really, really well. And one of the producers for the films randomly heard that and was like, wow, that was awesome. Who who did that, traced it back to me, and that's how I got connected with the opportunity. So you never know who's going to hear your work and so, my advice to anyone really that's looking to freelance is, don't let someone choose whether or not the work you do is good. Always do your best work, and then they can choose whether they want it quickly or cheaply. And if they choose cheap, then it's going to take a while. And if they choose quickly, then it's not going to be cheap. And particularly when you're starting out and you're still in the you know working for free phase, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then uh, you know there's going to be some leeway uh, with with all of those things. But in general. Those are two th- concepts that I would encourage people to kind of like keep in mind when it comes to work, good, cheap, or quick, pick any two of them. And then every job should, you know, a job can only give you relationships, fulfillment, or money. And ideally you want two or all three. Sometimes it's worth it to uh, to only choose one of those. I'm working on a project right now. It's a post uh, project that I'm not being paid for. Well, never mind. I guess I'm getting uh, I'm getting a, a a decent level of like fulfillment and satisfaction out of the actual work itself. But I'm mainly doing it for the relationships, and that's really that's the reason that I decided to take it. And so I have some leeway in terms of when I can when I can finish it. It doesn't have to be finished right away. But those relationships are really the only thing that I'm getting out of it. Um, but just be careful that when you're wanting to take a job to get a better relationship out of it, just make sure that that relationship is actually going to actually has the potential to be beneficial for you down the road, right? Because sometimes someone can look like, Oh, wow, I really want to make that connection. But when you look at the trajectory of their career, it's like, Nope, in two years, they're still not going to have a budget. And they're still not going to be paying their crew members. And that's probably a connection that's just not that valuable to you. And that sounds really selfish. But in a lot of ways, uh, your career is, you're in business for yourself. You're not really in business for them, if that makes sense. And so your first responsibility is to your family, to your career, you know, Um, to taking care of yourself, basically, if that makes sense. And again, that sounds so selfish to say it, but if you don't have that mindset, then every person that comes along that wants you to do a free job, um, you're going to take it. And that's just not sustainable.
0: Two things with that is I'm sure you get this a lot too. I swear most of the time it's sound guys that hear it, but someone comes up to us and says, Hey, we have this Amazing project! It's going to be um just fantastic. It's going to be at this film festival. It's going to be at this one. It's going to be on this one. I think it's going to be Vimeo staff pick. Uh, our budget we don't have we don't have one. Are you paying me? Nope. Uh, there's no pay involved. I I get this a lot, where they try to talk up the project like it's going to all these places and it's going to mm-hmm. be big, but then they try to get me to do it for free. And if it's really going to get to all these places, there has to be some sort of a budget in place.
1: Sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and I think sometimes every once in a great while, there's actually some legitimacy to that. Um, there are certainly breakout films at, you know, just like, for instance, um, at Sundance, you know, some film will just be this massive, massive breakout success. uh, And come to find out there was like zero budget. It was a total passion project. All the crew did it, you know, for free or for, you know, pennies. So sometimes that happens. But it's been my experience that every filmmaker thinks that their project is going to be the next breakout success at Sundance. And so I would say a fairly big. Easy and kind of initial way to vet some of those projects. Um, actually, before we even get to the vetting, remind me to come back to that. Um, but you need to step back and say, can I take this free job at this point in my career? And then step back even a little bit further and say, in two months, you know, depending if it's like a feature film or something, uh, in two months when I'm still stuck trying to work on this project to make their deadline. Am I going to regret taking this in two months? So sometimes uh, you might be available and it might kind of work out for you to take a project right now, but in a month, that's not going to be the case. Um, I had a project that actually is still kind of being worked through right now of how to fix this but I took a project a long time ago as a favor for someone who wanted me to take it as a favor for the filmmakers. So it was like this like second generation kind of favor thing. And because he, he really liked their work and felt like they were going places and wanted to help them, but he was booked. So I took it. And at the time I was available and it would have been fine, but they didn't deliver until literally six eight months later than they were supposed to have the edit locked and at that point my career had just kind of had this massive uptick and stuff was moving and I had I mean I just didn't have the time uh to to work on it anymore and then there were some other snags that were months and months and months and months of like hold up waiting on them so it was one of those things obviously I couldn't you know, couldn't have seen that they would miss the, uh, the delivery, but just because you can take a project right now. Um, I guess I say all of that to say it's incredibly important to be very, very, very choosy about what projects you work on. And don't, if, if you find yourself taking a lot of free projects, doing that often, that should be a red flag that you're taking too many. Um, so I'm I have two projects technically right now that I'm working on uh that are free but thankfully the um you know I I wouldn't have agreed to them if I didn't have control over the timeline of when I could work on it. So there is some flexibility there and they're both very creatively um creatively satisfying projects for myself and then one of them was done for some very uh, very good friends that I work with doing paid work fairly consistently. So, you know, it was, it was all right, but, um, just be very, very cautious about taking a pro- a, a project that's free. And then secondly, when it comes to vetting a project and trying to decide whether or not that's going to actually help your career is look at the filmmaker and the kind of the, uh, the level of content that they're producing right now. And if it's their first piece, you know, if it's their first ever film, it's probably not worth taking it just because your work is probably going to... There's someone who needs experience who's far less experienced than you, whose work will be able to 100% do justice to the rest of the production value of the project, and that's not a bad thing. So that's kind of like one way in which I vet projects is just look at this person where are they in their career Um, what's their experience level is this even going to be a good pro a good film and if they are experienced and they have produced really good work in the past then just kind of you know at at that point uh you just have to weigh am I willing to undertake this opportunity cost man it's all just kind of like on a case-by-case basis um when I'm vetting projects that are underpaid but usually um, if someone comes back and says, you know, I've got this project, are you interested? And I say, sure. And they say, you know, I say, you know, what's the budget you're looking to put towards sound and they tell me. And if so, if it's free, usually I just say, Hey, you know, thanks for uh, reaching out and thinking of me, but unfortunately I'm not taking uh, any, any more free projects right now. And I have yet to have someone not respect that. (laughs) Um, And if they don't respect that and they want to kind of lash out at you for not working on their project, then you probably didn't want to work with them.
0: One thing I definitely want to add to this is if you're doing free work and I honestly, I think that's fine starting out. But if you keep doing free work, you're going to attract Mm -hmm. clients that want free work. If you start charging for your work, Mm -hmm. you're going to attract clients that want to pay you, but it's going to be a little bit. If you're going to start charging more and you're going to probably feel bad for upping your prices. But once you do that, you're going to start getting more clients that are willing to charge for your services.
1: Can we just stop and have you say that again? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah, <repeat> <laughs> that, <laughs> that is so, so true. Um, I'm really glad you brought that up because yeah, when you're doing free work, I, so, so it's, it's funny. Um, one of the, uh, guys who's been my mentor, uh, had called me, uh, to work on a film that had a pretty low budget. And I ended up, he wanted me to boom for him. And for the record, I love working for this guy. He, like, if I could just work for him all the time, I, I would. He's just an absolute joy to work with. But he, um, We'll just say his name. I'll just use my name. It wasn't me, but we'll say his name's joe uh and uh he called me up for this film. I ended up passing on it for other reasons um like I just don't do nudity like if there's nudity, I'm out um I can put up with a lot, but that's definitely one line that I'm just have zero interest in and the script had a lot of nudity written into it uh during production. none of that ended up actually making it into the actual shoot, so Part of me kind of wishes I'd, I'd I'd taken it, but I I don't have any regrets. But anyway, all that to say, um, he was like, you know, I've got this job. I'd love to work with you, man. Unfortunately, the budget's low, and he was like, it's almost like, oh, we don't have any money. Oh, hey, call Joe, and it was just like this moment of like, you you know why these? And he'd worked with these producers before, and um, I was like, you know why they feel that way about you? Because the last time you worked for them, uh, you did them a huge favor and you did a low-budget shoot with them. And so guess who? Guess who is not going to give you a raise the next time around because they know you'll do the lower-budget work. That being said, th- this guy does, you know, high-budget stuff, so it's not like he's uh, a newbie to this at all. But it was just kind of interesting, to even at the level he's at, seeing that kind of playing out in his career, that it's like once you start doing, you know, low-paying work um, – that's going to come around to get you over and over and over and over again. And yeah, and essentially if, if you have a rate and someone comes back and they don't have that enough money to pay you for it, if you come down to their budget, um, and this is a little nuanced, so I'll just make a statement and then maybe give some clarifications on it. But when you just say, oh, okay, and take their rate, you're essentially saying my services are not worth what I have them priced at. And uh, you're just devaluing yourself, and that's a really, really terrible way to position yourself with that client and with just the industry as a whole. Um, yeah, you, you you can't be like sending that message that well, I'm not actually worth you know worth what my rate is. Um, usually, when someone doesn't have my full rate for a shoot, I never, never. I never work at their proposed rate, even if it's just $50 a day more, you know, whatever it is, I always negotiate them up. And it's just kind of this matter of principle that you can't walk into the grocery store and say, I only want to pay 50 cents for this loaf of bread instead of $1.20. Like, that's not how the world works. Um, And sure, in an industry such as the film industry, there is room for negotiation, but it should always be a negotiation don't just roll over and 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 play dead because you need the work and sometimes when i come back with a counter offer and say you know this is my standard rate um i would be willing to do it for this they will just you know walk away and that's fine um you have to be willing to let those opportunities go but yeah i i every single time i i never work at Wherever they put my rate, I I always just kind of as a matter of principle negotiate uh, up closer to where my rate, even if it's just a very small amount. Like I was just at a film festival uh, last week in Nashville, and there's just a lot of really young filmmakers, and some of them are actually doing really incredible work, but they just kind of like... Almost in a way like innocence and naivety of all these filmmakers and just the enthusiasm. It was so refreshing because I just didn't realize how cynical and bitter mm-hmm. that I that I've that I had become. And it was I don't know it was kind of an eye opener that just like wow man like how how can I get back to that? Because um, yeah, that it's uh, people are going to take advantage of you and and you know, all sorts of stuff. It's uh, certainly not a bed of roses.
0: Also, like the favorite thing is like the second time around, they're going to think that's your regular price.
1: Yeah. What I do to combat that is if, if I'm ever working for anything less than my full rate or, you know, if someone offers me anything less than my full rate or if they want me to do something for free or anything like that, um, I always, even if they say our budget is, you know, whatever, you know, 800, and we don't have a single penny more, you know, that's all we have, Um, I will come back and say, hey, my rate is normally whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 950, or, you know, if it's, you know, a larger scale production or something, you know, more, and uh, say, this is what my usual rate would be. But I love your project. I love what you're trying to do with it um so actually there's a a feature film I might be working on that at the time they were going to shoot in Hawaii and I was like you're nowhere close to my rate but they were willing to work with me you know maybe get some time before or after the shoot uh to just kind of uh, you know chill for 3 days or so and I was just like I'm not getting any job offers in Hawaii and on top of that I really love your film so you know Mm-hmm. but like up front right at the beginning of the conversation, making it very clear that this is my normal rate and I'm doing you a huge favor um, by working at your budget and uh business. My business partner and I are currently in, we're about a year and a half into the process of starting like a creative agency um, that's doing, you know, direct to client work and, that's been interesting, but that that has come back to bite us so many times where to get opportunities, um, such as a state university that we were working with, um, we would give them, you know, these deals on projects and then as like a favor. But then when you come back and want to work at a full rate, it's really hard, if not impossible to make that to make that jump. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah,
0: the fact when you raise your price or even. Establish a price point. If you were doing free stuff, is you're going to lose a lot of people. I mean, some people grew with me,
1: and that's not a that's not a bad thing, right? Whenever you move up a bracket or up us up a step in the production world, or really in any world, um, you're going to lose an entire chunk of your market. That's just a fairly well known like business principle, you know. And that's why it's re- the the concept of finding, figuring out who your ideal client is and not worrying about all of the outliers who fall outside of that kind of, you know, client description, because all they're going to do is distract you from working with the people that do have the budgets or the people who you're really trying to serve with your services or product or, you know, whatever. Um, and it, it's just a distraction and you can't, you can't worry about them. The product or service you're offering, it's not for them. And so it's okay to just acknowledge that and say, I know, you know, you don't use my product because it's priced too high or you don't see the need for it. And that's okay. I'm not going to let myself be distracted by that because this isn't for you. You know, if you don't see the need for it, then it's not for you. And so
0: it's interesting too, because when I'm doing sound design, I always do a flat fee and but when I say that a lot of the time people really like that because they know exactly what they're paying for upfront. Yeah. And there's no surprises or anything like that.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. I don't know if you're familiar, so I'm going to start plugging some content here. Uh there's a book called Worth Every Penny. Uh it's written by a photographer called or, uh, a photographer um uh Sarah Petty and And uh, that is just an insanely valuable, valuable book, in my opinion, as a freelancer, as a small business owner. um, I pretty much everybody that I run into, I just kind of recommend it as a this is like a non-negotiable must read book. Um, And then Chris Doe talks about this a little bit or actually not a little bit. Chris Doe is a designer based out of L.A., And but he generates a ton of content around the business of being a creative and how to work the business. And so, something that he talks about a lot is your pricing can't be based on time, Uh, it has to be based on multiple things. And one of a big one is value. And so, if you're going to like take Nike, the Nike logo is really simple. And it might have taken the designer, you know, 20 minutes of discovery before he stumbled on that design. So, a couple, I'll just talk about time based right now. Um, if you contrast that with a just beginning logo designer who it took them three days to come up with that concept, suddenly the experienced designer is being penalized essentially because he works faster and hence he can bill for less hours. Um, now you could argue that you know his rate is probably going to be higher than the other guy, but what if one what if their two their rates are the same they're both equally skilled they've worked with equally large clients um and it takes one three days before he lands on the idea, and the other one does it in you know two hours suddenly he's being penalized essentially for working faster um so hourly can be a very skewed um poor way of of you know, calculating what to charge. Um, Now, that being said, my rates are kind of based off of, you know, loosely off of kind of an hourly rate. Um, But when it comes down to value pricing, that Nike logo, they're going to take that and make billions of dollars off of their logo, right? And so when you're doing the Nike logo, you're going to charge them 20 million for it. But then you can turn around and design a logo for a mom and pop shop, and it might take you twice as long to finish that one. But you're really only gonna you know charge them like fifteen, two thousand dollars for it, um, fifteen hundred, (laughs) two thousand dollars for it because it's not bringing that much value to their brand. And so there's, they obviously aren't going to allocate, you know, twenty million to developing their logo. So, you could argue, well, why are you working for the mom and Pop shop for you know fifteen hundred dollars And I think that's a valid question. like if you're charging twenty million to design Nike's logo, uh, then you're probably not designing anything for mom and pop shops that have very small budget. But the principle of basing your pricing on the value, you know, if you're working on a Hollywood studio film, Uh, the sound design rates are a lot higher than the same sound designers. And I see this around like in groups on Facebook and on forums and stuff, talking about the difference between indie budgets and like studio budgets. And you can sound design a two hour film. That's a studio film. And you're going to be paid way more than doing it on an indie budget. And that same professional will step back and say, wow, that was a really well-paid indie film. Um, And so it just kind of comes back to this, again, that value idea of what's it worth to the client? Um, I just recently had a job for a pretty big name uh, client who flew a VIP over to South Korea for the Olympics to do an interview with two athletes. And the media team uh, for this company did not take a sound guy. And long story short, record didn't get put, pressed on the audio recorder. And so um, I get a panic call at 1 a.m. saying, hey, this has to be in L.A. in the morning, uh, and all we have is this incredibly noisy camera scratch track. Can you fix it? So that's a scenario, one, because of who the client was and because of the the fact that salvaging this recording is worth way more to them than, you know, just some small mom, you know, a, a promotional for a small mom and pop shop. Um, that's going to inform my pricing a lot. And then the fact that obviously that they call at 1am for one, and then secondly, that it was such a a, a rush turnaround. Um, that's also going to incur a very high premium um, for that rush and for the hour at which Um, at which they needed it done. But all that to say, if I had just been charging, you know, by hourly, the end client would have received an insane amount of value for very, very little. And it would have been a very, you know, just like out of balance transaction, if that makes sense. People
0: are going to listen to this podcast. What is one thing that they can apply today or tomorrow that will really greatly affect their life.
1: I'm actually working with some freelancers right now and just kind of really essentially like business coaching them. Um, And honestly, I'm not, I should not be business coaching anyone, right? I've got my own problems uh, uh, to take care of that I need coaching on, but I am further down the road, if you will, than they are in their career. And so... I I do have some like legitimate value that I can provide for them. But the one thing that I see that I see freelancers doing is not charging enough, letting clients trample all over them, letting clients just change the scope of a project. So like, you know, not establishing a scope of work. And then when the client wants to add all of these things and doesn't want to pay more, you know, there's no been, no established scope of work. And so, They don't have a real leg to stand on to say, okay, sure, we can do all of that, but I'm going to need to increase the budget. I don't know if it's not wanting to rock the boat, but just, I don't know, just rolling over and playing dead and being yes men and letting clients just trample all over them or not acting in a way that says what they're doing and the service they're providing has worth and letting clients project that onto them um, and in a, in a sense, like steal their worth, and whether that's by lowballing them on budgets, you know that that can just take so many different forms.
0: Let's wrap this up. Cool, Joe. Where can people reach out to you at?
1: Yeah, I would say like reach out on Facebook or shoot me a, shoot me an email, and uh, we can just kind of from you know from there. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man.